Welcome, y'all, to the Navigating Interdisciplinarity podcast series brought to you by the ISC ECN. I am Maria, an econometrician slash agent-based modeler, joining you from Bonn today. And I'm Hita. I study urban social ecological histories, mostly centered around lakes in Bangalore, India. As always, we are hosting you today. Do you know this? moment sometimes when you go to your first project meeting and for some reason it has this weird vibe. Maria, you know, by all traditional definitions, I am the marginalized scholar, you know, the typical marginalized scholar. I'm brown, I'm immigrant, I'm female. But here I think I can claim a position of extreme privilege because my first big collaboration outside of my PhD was with a group of really well-known but a incredibly warm and kind-hearted people and that kind of set the tone for how I began to view collaborations um, the tribe that I wanted to be associated with and and the kind of researcher that I wanted to become as I progressed in my career. Nice I agree there are these moments when there is this instant spark of connection between people who work together and I think also that can lead to extremely fruitful relationships but at the same time I think that it also might be a question of serendipity too. Yeah, could be, and, yes. Yeah. Well, let's pick it apart a little bit and dive deeper into the topic with Dane and our guest for today. Thank you for joining us today. This is the fourth episode of the Navigating Interdisciplinarity podcast, where we will be discussing how to build interdisciplinary collaborations. I'm Dane Whitaker, a PhD student at the School of Sustainability at Arizona State University, and I have the privilege to be joined today by Georgina Kendall-Kemp, who's a Senior Program Specialist at the International Development Research Center in Canada, and Pranita Mudliar, who's an Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies and Science at Ithaca College. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Nice to be here. Thank you for having us. So in our previous episodes, we have discussed building your profile as an interdisciplinary researcher and the opportunities and challenges of working in a disciplinary environment as an interdisciplinary scientist. In this episode, we're discussing how to build interdisciplinary collaborations. So before you get started, let's get to know y'all a little bit. And we'll start with this first question. How do you describe the research you do and yourself as a scholar? And Pranita, maybe you could start. Sure. So... Like I said, I'm an assistant professor in environmental studies and sciences at Ithaca College. Before I got to Ithaca College, I was a postdoctoral fellow in environmental justice and sustainability at the University of Denver. And I got my degree at Ohio State, which is in environmental and natural resources. So you can see that I had different positions everywhere, right? So at Ohio State, I was taught to call myself as an environmental social scientist that At that time, I embraced wholeheartedly because it made sense that I'm doing social science in the context of environment. So it made complete sense back then. But I think today what I call myself depends upon the context and the people with whom I'm interacting. Uh, So if I I call myself as an environmental social scientist to people from a non-academic background, I think I'm going to be met with a lot of blank stares. Uh, This is a term that academics use, right? It's jargony. And I don't want to alienate myself more from people. I think merely being an academia does take care of that. So I I don't want to use the term environmental social scientist when I'm talking with non-academic backgrounds, uh, folks from non-academic backgrounds. But if I'm with other social scientists, I would say that I think I study environmental policy and governance because I cannot really say that I'm a political scientist because I didn't train in that discipline, but I draw from theories from that particular discipline. So it's always been a dilemma, but it's a dilemma that I'm becoming more comfortable with. I like saying environmental policy and governance, but it's not a tist, right? It's not like a political scientist or a political ecologist. So it doesn't have that, uh, it doesn't fully capture what I do, but it gives me the space to navigate this, I don't know, interdisciplinary space that we are in. Uh, I know what I'm not. I know I'm not a political scientist. I know I'm not a political economist. I know I'm not a political ecologist. I'm, I know I'm not a geographer. I know I'm not an economist. So uh, I think environmental policy and governance, although it's a mouthful, it sounds nice. So I would say that I'm still in a place where I'm figuring it out. 
and it's also nice because i don't have the pressure to black box myself into a certain disciplinary hole uh, because like i do things with social justice and climate action and environmental conservation so for now i think i just play it by the situation what pranisha said <laughs> it's really interesting hearing that um yeah i think i've had a very similar um experience i I was called a social ecologist for a while because that was my job description when I when I worked in in Chile where there was like no there were really very few people who had a very interdisciplinary background. I'm a social scientist who has a PhD in environmental science. Um and so I was called a social ecologist and I sort of wore that for a few years. I thought, yeah, that feels okay. Um I've been called an environmental scientist, so that's never comfortable because then everyone thinks that I'm a natural scientist, which I'm not. So then I have to say that I'm a, a social scientist who works in environmental science, but I've actually stopped agonizing over it in recent years. I just give my job title now um, and don't try and, and, and say what discipline I'm in. I do also have the freedom that I'm now working in the climate change adaptation space, which is actually a really broad one, which I like. So that I, I just say that now, and that holds everything that I do around in, in environmental governance, collaborative management, transdisciplinary practice. Um, so that's what I do. But you also asked how would I describe myself as a scholar? And that's a bit of a different question, I think, at least for me, because that's about our practice. You know, it's how we are as scholars, I think. I think I'd like to think of myself as a scholar. I don't know if I achieve it, but um, I try to be very generous with people around me in terms of both time and ideas. Um, I try to do that. And I try to be very open minded, I think, in this interdisciplinary space. If we don't come into it with an open mind, we're sort of lost. But I know that I've had like students, I'm sort of open minded, but with standards. So you can convince me of anything provided you can make an argument, you know, and, and, and give me that logic that I'm, I'm usually sold. That's awesome. And I think that leads us nicely into our next question, which is like, what does navigating interdisciplinarity mean to you and in your work? Oh, it means lots of things to me. Um, so there's a, there's the personal level, and also in in my job, I also sort of oversee collaborative teams and and also try and facilitate how they work. So maybe from the personal, for me, navigating it is about, you know, when you start collaborating with people and working in an interdisciplinary way, I always feel like you you basically have these unknown shorelines. That's what it is. It's like you they're these places that you don't really know exactly where they are, and like you're on the ship in the middle, and you could go in all these different ways, and you have to navigate your way through these kind of shorelines that you don't know. And the only way you can do that is with whatever you have at your disposal, some compass or the stars, and that compass and the stars are basically your colleagues and your friends who have expertise that help you see those shorelines. And so that's uh, where trust becomes really important with how we navigate it. So at a personal level, that's I, I think navigating interdisciplinarity is just the perfect metaphor for what we do. And then for the teams that I'm, I manage, um, you know, navigating interdisciplinarity is sometimes just the work of figuring out what the problem is that we're trying to solve together, agreeing how we're going to approach it, negotiating how we're going to do that, compromising with our own thoughts of how we should do that. Um, I just want to say I really loved Georgina's analogy of the compass and the stars. It just made it sound so beautiful. For me, I think it's a really hard question and I don't think that I can speak to this authoritatively because I don't think I've navigated uh, interdisciplinary, but generally I think it means being able to sit down with people who have different ways of seeing the world. And here I'm not just talking about different scientific disciplines, but I'm talking about different bodies of knowledge, different knowledge systems altogether, local knowledge and indigenous knowledge and professional knowledge and scientific knowledge. And I think it's about making and giving room to these different knowledge systems to coexist and thrive without wanting to integrate or bridge them or using one way of knowing to assess local knowledge or to assess indigenous knowledge or using other knowledge systems to fill holes and gaps in scientific knowledge. And I think this is where I am at right now in my preliminary navigations of this interdisciplinary work. So generally, I think when we talk about interdisciplinarity in just the scientific domain, it's always about, oh, we're bringing in 
different people from different disciplines in order to figure out how do you even frame this research question. But I think when it's about these different bodies of knowledge, it's maintaining the autonomy and the integrity of these different knowledge systems, maintaining that exclusivity uh, and different ways of seeing the world. I would like to jump in here for a question. Pranita, did you you mentioned early a little bit your 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 like the different identities or the different hats you're so to say wearing, right? Like that you um, depending on whom you're talking to. And I was wondering, does that then help in building collaborations? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I think given that I've had these different positions that have allowed to allowed me to explore these different but also interconnected bodies of literature, right? So right now, I'm able to build upon that in order to collaborate with people from very different disciplines that I have not studied at all, uh, like with people who are political economists or geographers, or even just with my students who are still getting there, we're just figuring out what does theory mean and you know what, what are the epistemologies and ontologies and all of that. So, and being in a department that is called environmental studies and sciences, I don't have to lay claim to any certain disciplinary expertise. Uh, although my previous institute did focus on that. We were in an interdisciplinary school, but the focus was always to get deep into that training of your particular discipline or domain, because they used to talk about that T-shape. Do you want to be a breadth person or do you want to be a depth person? So our department did focus on that, which is great for me because I know one language and vocabulary really well. Uh, and this really helps me working with students uh, who come from very different backgrounds, who take very different courses. So drawing upon those different hats that I hold helps me in working with students who have very different interests that don't necessarily always match my interests but then we are able to come to this common point. Yeah and maybe I'll come in on, on this question as well it's an interesting question I haven't thought of it that way and I, I wonder if I'm, I know the reason for that. I don't think we collaborate with each other because of the titles that we give ourselves in our disciplinary backgrounds. We collaborate with people whose expertise we trust in a certain area and we collaborate around specific projects. And so no one's ever approached me to collaborate with them because I work in climate change adaptation. They might approach me to work with them because I've published on a particular issue and they think I have expertise in that area. So I think we're really moving beyond discipline. You know, Pranita's, you know, wonderful description of her journey through the titles earlier, mine too, and now I'm at a point, it's like, who cares? I mean, I agonized about this in my early years. I was like, oh, mom, I'm going to be, you know, the depth, breadth question and the, is anyone going to employ me? And I'll tell you, every <laughs> I think interdisciplinary sustainability scientists like ourselves, we want to have, like, there's such a huge demand and no one cares really what your label is. Um, it's really about the, the area of expertise. So for me, it's become a non-issue, but I do remember that it used to be. That is great relief to a person like <laughs> me, to be honest, because I'm always a little bit, I guess like there's always a situation when your professor at one point is like, as, as Pranita just said, right? Like, do you want to be that person or do you want to be that person that goes down deep, right? Or the one with the, the generalist, so to say. And I also am like at the point where I'm like, where how about a pyramid that's going down and out? <laughs> I love that answer. Thank you. But also, if I could add to it, is that like the world needs both and they need yeah. everything in between. So mm -hmm. what you should really do is whatever you're really interested in. And if you do that, you'll be fine. You know, there will be a place for everyone from the depth to the breadth space in this field. So you just do what is interesting to you and then you'll find collaborators and you'll find projects. And yeah, I was just thinking that it's, it's, you know, something that I totally echo Maria on. I mean, I'm like, I'm at that phase where what is term I? I just answered some question recently about, you know, how I start, I've started thinking in terms of the research question and not the ist that I am, but uh, still doesn't help because everyone asks you, what are you? What do you want to focus on? What discipline are you? Or, or what interdisciplinary discipline are you in? Or whatever, right? But I just wanted to also acknowledge something you said, Georgina, earlier and something that Pranita also brought up when she was just talking about talking to different backgrounds and students who come in from different places and so on and I think and and what you said Georgina about being kind really and I just wanted to acknowledge that as being very important because that is something that reinforces this positivity within not just academia but also you know 
any any sort of learning tutor student relationship that it it might even be at workplaces right when you're a senior and so on and very often we do not have that we do not have i know a lot of people who struggle to have supervisors who are kind and who sort of respect some of the opinions even if they differ from their professors and so on and so i really just wanted to highlight that that's something that's very important and yeah there's no question in there i just want to highlight it can i just add something yeah like students don't come to you because of your discipline right they come to you because of the rapport and the relationship that they establish with you so yes. uh, like i don't think students even care or some of them may not even know what discipline you are in but maybe they just took a class and they really enjoyed having you as a professor and that's at least been the reasons why students have approached me to work with them and i don't think they still know they keep asking me so what exactly do you do and like yeah something to do with the environment and then we move on so Yeah, absolutely. I think that's also been my motivation for working with most people I work with. So I think that leads us nicely into talking about collaborations. The the purpose of this episode is how do you build interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary or multidisciplinary or some some whatever kind of collaboration. And so let's open it up with like what are the types of collaborations you work in and why is collaboration important? to addressing some of the the major environmental and climate challenges we face today so i think my idea of interdisciplinary collaborations comes from wanting to develop a better understanding of the world and for improving upon the current solutions that we have in order to promote a fair just and inclusive future so i have this very normative starting point because you look at the crisis raging all around us today solutions to these crises have come from the scientific way of knowing uh, but look where it's landed us today right we have forest fires raging everywhere there's crisis going on everywhere there's a pandemic going on and fortress conservation as a model of conservation still continues even in today's times like the the 30 by 30 policy that has been put forth by several international agencies as well as the push from the biden administration so i question like how are these policies going to be implemented is it again going to entail the evictions of uh, indigenous communities and wouldn't interdisciplinary collaborations both within science and respectful collaborations with indigenous communities give us better solutions that don't add on to existing injustices but instead seek to mitigate those injustices but we don't see that happening yet so i think that is at least my personal understanding of why interdisciplinary collaborations are important for developing better solutions to our current problems yeah and pranita real quick for our uh, listeners who might not know could you tell us about the 30 by 30 Uh, the 30 by 30 uh, policy is this policy to preserve 30% of the land by 2030 it comes from scientists actually who have been advocating for preservation so folks like eo wilson with uh, his half earth uh, idea so all of that has gotten a lot of steam and there's really no scientific basis for why 30% it just was it seemed like a cool number and is that a way that we want to move our conservation policies forward that it sounds cool because it's 30 by 30 there's really no logical reasoning behind why 30% and where in the world is that 30% going to be uh, and who is going to be affected by that 30% of land and i think it's also about water bodies that are going to be set aside awesome thanks for clarifying So Georgina, how do you think about collaborations and why are they important? Uh well, I mean, to be honest, I think every single thing I do is collaborative. But I think in in general, when we're dealing with environmental issues and sustainability issues, we're dealing with like complex problems where like solutions are only ever solutions for for like a certain number of people for a certain amount of time. and then they're no longer solutions because the whole context changes and because it's so complex i mean there is no single discipline that would be able to deal with these kinds of really complex environmental and social problems so we we simply have to collaborate we've been using the language in the, in this discussion around interdisciplinarity and so i've been confining myself to thinking about disciplines but i talk about transdisciplinarity when i start incorporating not only indigenous knowledge but also other ways of knowing and i, I hear us talking about that too so i'm going to take that leap you know and i mean that is what we have to be doing 
so for me, what that looks like is you also asked for a couple of examples. So um, the last sort of, I guess, few four years or so, I was convening a global group of of people of researchers and and practitioners who are really interested in how we pursue research uptake like writ large so how do we get evidence into policy and practice and really trying to learn across you know multiple programs about how we do that better so that's one example of a of a collaboration where we're really trying to you know move way beyond just academic knowledge of how we do that um, kind of work. The other collaboration I'm involved in right now, which has been really challenging and fascinating, has been one around climate justice, where I'm collaborating with someone from the legal, from who's a who's a who's a lawyer, and I, this is like a completely different world for me compared, you know, my background and us trying to find each other and figure out a common way to describe what we're trying to do. Um, has been really challenging. That's awesome. Thanks. So I guess like thinking about some of your recent or maybe not so recent collaborations, what has worked and what has not worked in them? And especially think about this in in the frame of early career researchers who might be embarking on their first collaboration or getting the opportunity to organize one. Like what's I guess what's been working and what's not been working for you? Yeah, I mean, I think just the basics. I think what works in collaborations is that you have to enjoy each other's company. You have to almost be friends. I don't think you have to be best buddies, but you need to be able to spend significant amounts of time with each other and not irritate each other, basically. And um, I think that's really important. And you also have to trust each other's expertise. I think if you're trying to collaborate with someone where you're not sure if they have the expertise or if they doubt your expertise, you're going nowhere. So um, I think what what works is trust, friendship, and just being able to spend significant amounts of time together. You know, when I was um, I was part of the Resilience Alliance um, like Young Scholars Network, many years ago, but I had the, the privilege of attending a couple of the Resilience Alliance meetings. And I remember that was one of Buzz Holling's thing that he always used to say is like, you could, you could only join the Resilience Alliance if you could be stuck on an island together. So that they, they used to have their meetings on an island so that people could like, and, and you had to be able to enjoy each other's company. I, I've never forgotten that and it's very true. Um, and then what doesn't work? Oh, I think when people defend intellectual territory in a, in a collaboration, I think that really doesn't work. When people are, are defensive about their ideas, like if you enter a collaboration, you have to be willing to compromise and accept that what you think you should be doing is not what's going to happen because it's a collaboration. So a, a collaboration for me, it's, it's a give and take relationship. It's not just everyone brings everything they have and then you add it together and that's where you are. It has to, it has to be a compromise. Sure. You're again, you're, and I love your analogies uh, about especially being on an island because I think that's how uh, the folks who are inside Biosphere 2 in Arizona, I think that's how they got started on by they had to go to an island and check out if they're able to tolerate and bear each other. And if they succeeded, that's what got them into the Biosphere 2. Uh, but yeah, so all the things that Georgina said, I think enjoyment for me, at least is one of the most important aspects of being able to collaborate because if I'm not having fun, if I'm not enjoying myself, I'm not going to be able to bring the best version of myself. Enjoyment usually also helps spark a lot of uh, intellectual thoughts. So I think that is one of the most important aspects for me. And other than that, just being really open about what exactly is the project about, who is going to have what sort of roles. I think clarifying all that at the onset becomes really important in order to avoid any difficult conversations or just a difficult or bad experience at the end. So just knowing what you are expected to bring to the table. Mutual respect has been another really important one for me because if I, it's going to be hard if people don't respect what I do. And it's going to be similarly for me too. So that has been really important. And especially as someone who is on a tenure track. So I'm still considered to be sort of an early career researcher, I guess. And especially if I'm working with senior scholars, I have to make sure that I am able to be assertive and also be able to speak up in meetings. And then things like professionalism, clear communication, and what Georgina mentioned, and it cannot be overemphasized, I think just trust is really important. 
And maybe I could add something on from, from what Prinita just said. So one of the things we know is that it takes much longer to collaborate than it does to just sit down and do your own work. So there's like significant transaction costs involved in collaborating. And so what Prinita said about the importance of having fun, like you have to figure out like what's in it for you. Why would you why would you do this? And for different people at different stages of their careers, actually what, what we're learning is that there's very different incentives to do it. So for young scholars, it's often about network building that become really, those networks become important throughout their, their entire careers. And the incentives to collaborate actually tend to decline as you get further on in your career because it just takes so much longer and um, you don't necessarily need those networks. So for me, I think at this stage of my life, for example, I want to be having a good time because that's the, and learning something and feel like I'm really getting something out of it because otherwise the transaction costs are just too high. Uh, so transaction costs, like we have had, at least in uh, my previous institutes, as well as from current mentors and colleagues now, we talk a lot about what are the transaction costs for participating in these interdisciplinary collaborations. And I'd really be interested in hearing your thoughts too about this, but the advice that I've received is that just stay away from interdisciplinary collaborations because you're on the tenure track. You need to put your voice out there. You need to put in single author papers, or if you're doing co-author papers, it needs to just be with one or two authors. But yeah, like if you're if you're working interdisciplinary within interdisciplinary collaborations, that's first of all going to take really long. And if your voice is going to be lost among 10 or 20 people on that particular paper, it's really hard for people on the tenure track to then justify to your tenure committee as to what particular role you played in a certain paper. Uh, so the advice that I've gotten right now is go out there, build your networks, build your collaborations, but do your interdisciplinary work only after you receive tenure, not before that, because it's a slow process and you need to make a mark for yourself now by putting out all your single author or co-authored papers. So, so it's, it's been very hard because interdisciplinary collaborations, they're fun to do, right? And I would like to be a part of it. But on the other hand, I think the academic structure does not provide those incentives in order to foster interdisciplinarity at this early career stage. And I think that that, um, as someone who who thinks about how rules and norms change and who's been um, facilitating these discussions for the past few months, I think that it's something that we're recognizing. The conditions have changed. We're not no longer getting the outcomes that we need. And so we need to change the rules and norms. And that's happening in how do you get funded and how do you create these projects and how people like to work, but it still isn't changing in how people get hired, how people get promoted. These are the areas that are still resistant to that change. And so I think there's a lot of, we're getting there, but it's not there yet. And you happen to be in this, this uh, kind of boiling pot of, where the change needs to happen, but also you're still having to play the system, play the game a little bit by the rules that are in place. And so this is, I'd just like to qualify what I said. So this is the advice I received from a lot of folks who are at R1 institutes that are research intensive. Uh, I am not at an R1 institute. I am at a small liberal arts college uh, where the research requirements for tenure are not as onerous as it would be in an R1 institute. But yet, even in my institute, if I am going to be co-authoring a publication in a multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary collaborative effort, I do need to justify in my tenure file, in my written statement as to what exactly, what was my role, uh, how did I contribute in that paper. And uh, I think even in my institute, it would be considered fine, but it would still require heavy justification. I would like to jump in there, actually, because like while you were saying that, I was also thinking, and then <laughs> at least um, I've like, already made that experience. You're uh, trying to apply for project money, right? Like you're you're trying, you're, you have this, I would say like this kind of strange transdisciplinary ideas where you know after three years which people you need to put together where are the people that it makes fun to actually do something together and then you're applying with a project that then again somebody right like evaluates too who has potentially I want to say like a different plenary lens on right like how they they're like certain things are then not going deep enough for them 
and you're you're kind of like struggling on like how do you sell that project to somebody else right like uh, because on the one hand you need to justify why you need that special data set with those special and potentially a little bit more expensive methods or um, have these people in and need that addition one additional person that one sociologist for example right where you're like okay that's the person that that checks so to say my quality on my ethnography and does it with me together and stuff like that right um yeah so that was one of the the thoughts is like how do you how do you manage then in, in the next step from there and at the same time people tell you transdisciplinary is the best thing you can do <laughs> right? yeah i mean i sit on on call committees um fairly often so i've got a sense of what you're saying although um i mean i work for a research funder that is really all about um, impact so in my experience, if you can tell a good story about the problem that you're tackling and the kinds of impact you can have through your research, that's the way to do it. I think the the mistake that maybe some interdisciplinary scholars or all scholars make, at, at least when they apply to us, so, you know, all funders are different. So the first message is like, you know, you have to tailor it to who you're putting the proposal into. And, and there's definitely some funders who are not like the IDRC. But for us, I think people tend to foreground the research and not the problem that they're trying to solve. And I think with sustainability science in general, proposals are just so much more compelling when they when they speak about what that problem is, what impact you're going to have and how you're going to have that impact. And then the research theory and all that other stuff, it's, it's kind of, it's not secondary. I mean, it's the main deal of what you're going to do, but to, it, it's the third part in the story. It, it's the problem, it's the impact, and then how you're going to reach that through the research. And the partnerships, you know, I think very often in, in proposals, people fail to emphasize the importance of partnerships and they stop at the level of interdisciplinary partnerships. I'm going to work with an anthropologist and I'm going to work with an ecologist. And that's great. But if you want to have impact and actually tackle a problem, you want to think about novel coalitions of actors, of people who are not your usual suspects, um, bring in NGO partners who know how to move research into action, for example. Um, it isn't exactly an answer to your question, and it all depends on the size of the grant. If you're bidding for like a really small grant, you can't have these big coalitions of actors. So it kind of depends, I think. Thank you. Yeah, well, I mean, like, it depends, right? Like what, if you're, if you're at my stage, you're like going for potentially a little bit more little grants, like not several billions, it's more like, give me a couple 100,000. <laughs> I want to have a position, that kind of thing. Yeah, so um, maybe not the most useful advice, but the piece of advice that I think still holds, no matter what size of the grant, is if you're wanting to make the case for an interdisciplinary project and multiple types of expertise, you start with the problem because the problem is going to illustrate the need for an integrated approach. And so if you start with that, then you've got the justification for the rest. Um, yeah. I think that doesn't matter on the size of the ground. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That sounds like we like that. That should be the key. While you were talking, Georgina, for uh, I think a little earlier when you mentioned friendship, I just wanted to, I was, I was recollecting the first time I was in a collaboration and yeah, it was something that uh, where I was one of the few early career scholars, that kind of a thing. And I remember other people walking around in the, in the space that we were meeting at and saying, you know what, this collaboration is really nice. There is no one that I would like to see at a conference and run away far from, you know? And I was just thinking, it kind of resonated a lot with let's have fun. My question really comes in from a lot of these grant bodies which are seeking to encourage collaboration, for example, the UKRI or the NERCs of various places and so on. Uh, and what they do is they hold workshops now online, but uh, sometimes in person, where they bring a bunch of people who apply and say, okay, this is what I'm interested in. This is what I'm interested in. This is how I'm going to be doing this. I'd like to meet up with someone who does something else, so to speak. And then uh, they put you in a room. They have these breakout rooms or in, in, uh, in the in-person event, it's more like, okay, let's huddle into groups and discuss something. And then the expectation is that you would write a seed proposal from there, which would potentially get funded and so on. And I was just thinking, I mean, when so much of collaboration really involves interpersonal relationships and building trust, and these are the kinds of things that we as early career scholars are encouraged to go in for. I was just thinking, I mean, how then do you decide whether this collaboration is something that you want to be? Of course, the question is important, but are these the kind of people that you want to work with? Because 
one meeting over two days is unlikely to cut it. Bringing people together and telling them, okay, hey, you can apply for a grant. We've got some money. I mean, it's okay. The money is a big factor that you might get a grant and you might have, uh, you know, that you are the PI or the co-PI of a particular grant that is collaborative. You might even be able to put it in your CV and say, look, I managed to collaborate with people from 101 universities to, you know, do it. But in terms of delivering the project or doing the research, I just, I mean, I'm not sure how, how effective that would be. And also, um, like, ideally, you're going to be working on projects with your best friends, and you already have a relationship with them. But that's usually not the case. And so a lot of this stuff that we talked about, about like trust and um, being able to work well with people and like developing uh, friendship has to be something that's built through the collaboration. So I think both Tahita's question of like, how do you make decisions about when to jump into this? And then when you do jump into it and don't know people well, how do you kind of like establish that baseline to get going? Just thinking about friendship, I've tried really hard to collaborate with some of my closest friends and it's never worked out ever. And these are like environmental activists or, you know, just doing really cool stuff. And we've been trying for the past 10 years, actually. And we're trying even today, like just two weeks ago, we had a conversation that, oh, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And it has never materialized. And that just got me wondering that, you know, what is it about this particular friendship space that does not seem to get anywhere? But I think that the other collaborations that I've had have started from these professional contexts, and then we've gone on to become friends. But I think professionalism has been the basis of building that trust and that mutual respect. I, I agree, Pranita. I think that for me, research friends and best friends, it's a different kind of friendship. It's a different kind of thing. It's um, You're doing different things there, and I think there's value in keeping them somewhat separate. <laughs> to Hita's question about these, the way that you know some funders are like trying to create these little seed funds and getting people to collaborate, I can understand why some funders do that. You know, what happens in these international networks, is, and I'm sure you've seen, is that they become increasingly exclusive over time because they're based on personal relationships. And so you, you get these networks, people know each other and because they know each other, they bid together for these grants and then they become known as people who can secure money and deliver a project. And so they get the next project and they tend to become increasingly exclusive in, rather than inclusive over time. And so very often funders are trying to break those networks and to create space for like especially young scholars, because not everyone has the privilege of, for example, having a supervisor that puts them forward, introduces them to global networks, gets them into a young scholars network. It's, you know, some people have really miserable supervisors who just don't create opportunities for their students. And there's always value in, and as, as limited as it is, you know, I think that's what some funders are trying to do, especially when they target it at young scholars. And they say, listen, we'll bring you here see if you can find a connection. If you do, we'll give you some funds. Um, but I, I share your skepticism of that approach. I think in the programs um, that I'm involved in, we try to play the long game with those small collaborations. So first, first fund a number of larger programs and then for the scholars who are already within those, provide them opportunities over time as they build relationships to bid for smaller pots of money and to bring in new collaborators who weren't part of the original core. We need multiple avenues for young scholars to enter these networks and just to remember how exclusive they often are. Uh, thanks, Georgina. But uh, yeah, the second part of my question was really um, building trust within such new, new spaces and deciding really how to choose what you want to be involved in. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's, that's, that's an important one. I mean, so I think for, for people who already have networks, it may not be worth again, the transaction costs involved because it is going to be hard. I mean, I'm not sure that I would like to be in a collaboration like that where I don't actually know the person. I don't know if I can trust them to do what they said they would do. But for someone who has no other networks and this is an opportunity for them, maybe it's worth their time to put that time in to build that trust. When you were talking about working with friends, um, I do get the idea that research friends and best friends are obviously not the same. But then when you're working with people who become your friends, there might be times when your intellectual ideas differ from those of your collaborators. Uh, and at the same time, you have an interpersonal relationship that's going on there, which is friendship. Um, how do you navigate that tricky space? I think fortunately, like I mentioned, because professionalism has been the basis of uh, my collaborations, it's been interesting for me to learn how to navigate those spaces when 
disagreements happen, right? And disagreements happen with senior scholars sometimes. But I think I've also been fortunate where senior scholars have given me that space and the freedom to air out differences because it's in the context of an intellectual disagreement. It's not that I'm disagreeing with the person, right? It's about the idea. And I think nice things have emerged from those disagreements. We've come to different ideas that hadn't occurred to each of us individually. So I, I've been in a space where I think these collaborative efforts have allowed for that room and that exploration. And given these, you know, unequal power dynamics that we have in academia, uh, so even with senior scholars, I'm really grateful for that space. And these are also people who are in charge of evaluating me and other aspects of my teaching and service and all of that. So I feel fortunate in being in that space because it then also teaches me as to how I should, what kind of behavior I should be simulating or showing to my other students again. So I think that has been a fantastic experience for me. Yeah, I'm trying to think of an example where I had such a fundamental disagreement that we had a you know, uh, a problem with the relationship. And I, I can't, there's only one I can maybe even think of. And, and I think what, what was lacking in that context was mutual respect, which is something that Pranita brought up earlier. So I think if you have that as the basis for your collaboration, you never, it, it doesn't go there, I don't think, because you, you, you've you got such a huge amount of respect for one another's ideas that you can disagree intellectually as Pranita said and move on and also my experience with collaborative projects is that you very seldom are engaged in like one endeavor you're usually collaborating on something in which you have some level of autonomy for your piece of that collaboration there's a space that you share and then the other person is pursuing their piece of the collaboration and so there's space for both of you to think the way you want to think and do what you want to do and produce the papers you want to produce and then there's that central piece which is the collaboration and so I haven't had many very negative instances of that yet. If you're so wedded to your idea and you're being a part of an interdisciplinary collaboration, like something is not fitting there, right? Like you need to then rethink what exactly are you doing in this space? How do you get like government officials onto the island? Are you just like, well, I'm going to try to ship you over to the island, see if it works, if we all stand each other. And then, I don't know, we see who is falling off the boat or what. <laughs> I mean... I think the most important thing is that some people are allowed to fall off the boat, you know, so and new people have to come to the island, you know, like I think if we set up these kind of collaborations, especially when we're dealing with non academic partners in a program, you were mentioning government officials, I think you're saying like when you're trying to develop these sort of novel partnerships, um, you have to allow that they will not be interested at some point and not and, and and even accept that they will not be the right people not only as individuals which is a possibility but also in their position and also their position may change in the course of your project and so I mean I think flexibility is really um really really fundamental to that question how to get them on the island I think it's the more sort of standard stuff around co-design co-production you know I mean it's hard because you have to write a proposal and define the problem probably before you've spoken to your intended like recipient or you know collaborator because you don't want to build their expectations around the project if it doesn't go through um, but you have to co-design what you're doing with these you have to treat them as partners and not as a recipient of the outcomes of your research I think. I can just jump in there and uh, so again all the things that Georgina said and also knowing that different practitioners and government officials are going to have a very different worldview just of working right just a different way and style of working so also being open to that but as Georgina said some of them are going to probably you know not get onto the island at all or get onto the island and feel that maybe it's not the right island for them uh, so just being open to that and something that Georgina said earlier about kindness I think that really resonated with me uh, because sometimes in academia work is prioritized so much that if you send an email and if you don't receive an email or response back in 24 hours, you could tend to make assumptions about the professionalism of people, right? So, uh, but there are so many different kinds of things going on. Like for heaven's sake, we're in a pandemic right now. And we still hear of these horror stories of uh, just finding it difficult to work with advisors and all of that. But so I think kindness is just really important 
I think this is why senior scholars may have also given me this advice that, you know, right now just focus on building collaborations than actually doing the interdisciplinary work because you don't have the time to invest in doing the work right now. Uh, and this is something that you can do once you are in a more secure and a permanent position. Awesome. Thank you both. You've given us a lot to think about, about how to build collaborations, how to work within collaborations. And I think the the greatest thing I'm taking away from this is just being a kind and like trusting person in your collaborations and have fun with them and see how they go. So um, at the end of every episode, we have two questions that we like to ask our guests. Um, and so Hita, do you want to ask the first one? I mean, so what you just said, Pranita, also kind of resonates a lot with me, but I think something that seems to be coming out from as a theme, so to speak, from all of these things is um, what you just said about finding a niche before before going and spacing out, finding a safe space before going and experimenting um, or experiment within a safe space, you know, variations on that theme. And I think that's that's given us a lot to reflect about because at least for me personally, I think that's something that I have not tended to do. I It's more like, yeah, I'm interested in this. I want a finger in this pie. I'm interested in that. I want a finger in that pie too. You know, that kind of a thing. So strategy in terms of finding a safe space has not been something that I've consciously done at any rate. Uh, but no, the last question that we had, uh, we I mean, one of the last questions that we ask every guest is, have there been any epic fails? So in because this episode is about co- collaboration, have there been any instances that you can remember or are comfortable sharing where you've tried to collaborate with uh, folk and it's not worked out? And why would you think that has happened? I haven't thought about this in a long time, but I do have an example to talk about, which incidentally was a study about interdisciplinarity in uh, institutes in the United States. So we took this really wonderful class on uh, research. It wasn't methods. I think it was a philosophy of science. And we read this fantastic paper about there's this continuum of interdisciplinarity where it starts from disciplinary, multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, and then transdisciplinary. So we were, and I was in a Big Ten school. So I was curious and a bunch of other students with us and my uh, professor, we were curious about, so what does interdisciplinary or interdisciplinarity look like in these other graduate programs in the United States. We did the interviews. We interviewed a bunch of people from the University of Wisconsin, Iowa, Illinois, Michigan, uh, at Ohio State, Purdue. We also spoke with uh, some folks at Arizona State. And we got all of the data. I, My professor and I, we also went to a, a conference to present this data. And it was really well received. Uh, And then it came to the matter of writing up the paper and everyone disappeared. So we have all of this data, which we collected and we tried to get together and work on it, but it just never happened. And this was again, an interdisciplinary bunch of students. We had a soil scientist, we had a rural sociologist. I was there a policy and a governance person. There was another policy and governance person. Uh, So the time when the class was going on, that gave us this really rich atmosphere. But then when the structure of that class went away, it didn't really go forward and end up into becoming into a paper. So I think that was unfortunate. So I think having that structure and someone to lead that structure was very important in order to see that paper to its logical conclusion. So I think that has been this epic failure about a study about interdisciplinarity, a study on interdisciplinary by an interdisciplinary group of people. I'm trying to decide whether to give you a very controversial example or just a very safe one. What do you prefer? Controversial, I guess. Um, Controversial. Yeah, I have a, I have a, it's not an epic failure. I'm actually quite proud of it, but it, it was a failure of collaboration. A few years ago, before I moved to Canada, when I was still teaching in South Africa, I had a research group looking at land claims of um, previously disenfranchised communities in South Africa and land claims on protected areas. It's a really long and complex um, history, but I set up a, a project where I was trying to collaborate with essentially the reserve manager on a nature reserve that had been successfully claimed by the surrounding communities, but they had been 
denied access to the land, but they were trying to enter into a co-management agreement. And so I was trying to support the co-management process, working with both the community and the reserve manager to try and bring them together to develop that agreement. Um, and for about two years, I really did try to work very well with the reserve manager, but at some point I realized that they were actively um, undermining the community's ability to get legal representation in the negotiation process, whereas the reserve themselves had a lawyer and the community didn't. And they wanted their, the reserve wanted their lawyer to also represent the community, which was completely unfair because they were negotiating a legal agreement. Um, and so I got a lawyer for the community at their request. And the reserve manager was so outraged that I could have done that, that he, and I knew as I did it, that it was the end of the collaboration, that I was picking a side essentially in the process. And it was the end. I, I, I never worked with him again. I don't even think he ever spoke to me ever again, but I'm quite happy with that. And I think in, in research, you know, the uptake question, I think that Maria asked earlier, how do you get decision makers in the room? Our job is not only to pander to decision makers and to do the things that they want us to do. Our job is also to challenge them. But when you do that, like sometimes you're, they fall off the boat basically um, and don't get invited back to the island. Wonderful. I like that. I like that. I, I also think that is like, that's a good example of showing spine i don't know like in german you say you show spine <laughs> i don't know if that works in english as well but i can i can absolutely re relate to that that you you're you have also well i guess it comes back to this ability to bring the best version of yourself to the to the to the subject matter right like it's you're you're coming in as you you have certain ethical standards also that you don't want to just like put aside because <laughs> you know, that's part of your job now or something like that. But, and, and there I would say, if you're saying, okay, I'm picking the side of the weaker ones here in this case, and trying to give them, so to say, power over something that pretend, like belongs to them. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm all in there. And that's actually where I want to ask my last question for you too. Do you have any any last thoughts now that we're like been talking for over an hour because we've like we have well we have had so many many different things that we like themes that we picked out on like we were talking about flexibility in your identity so to say a little bit like then being legible on the one hand but then also on the other hand being a little bit like okay I can also give myself a very broad tag and I'm just trying to be relatable to others um yeah, so any last any last thoughts? Sure, uh, last thoughts. So I'll start off with, uh, I think doing interdisciplinary work is hard. Uh, it certainly is very exciting, especially when you're in a room with, you know, people from so many different disciplines, which gives you so many opportunities to learn, just, you know, different ways of approaching the question, but you have to think for yourself then, is it, is it right for you at that moment? If it's right for you then, then go for it. And Hita, this you know, comes back to what you were saying that you know, if you're interested in it, go for it, do it. If you're able to, if you're in a system where the incentives play to your benefits. Uh, and I think at least this is also what Dane was saying, right? That the rules of the system are just so slow to be changed. And at least I know so many folks who are at the same stage in their careers right now would absolutely love to do interdisciplinary work, but just the system does not allow us to do that. And unless that's changed, we need to secure our positions first, right? So it's, it's like, so you want to do this work, but then you can't do it at the same time. So I think that is where we are at. So at least I think so for people like me, I would suggest work on building collaborations, work on building your networks, because it's, you have all this time now and it's best to do it now rather than doing it after you get tenure and then start building collaborations and networks. I think doing it now also lays the groundwork for building upon those future collaborations for these interdisciplinary collab uh, collaborative efforts. And right now, I'm in a space where I'm able to also, since I know my body of literature, I'm getting to know it pretty relatively well. So I can turn my attention to you know the work that other social scientists are doing, learn from that, 
And if that is going to a good place, then I would start maybe looking at what natural scientists are doing and what people who have these different bodies of knowledge are doing. So at least I think taking it step by step has been working for me. I don't know if it's the right advice for everyone, but it, it's, it's been working for me. Um, I would say, since the message is for young scholars, um, in my experience, um, having a good mentor is um, about 70% of the game. <laughs> yeah, not 70, maybe 50, but it's very important. And um, I think if anyone is currently in a relationship where you feel that your mentor is not um, giving you opportunities or putting you first, you need to try and find a way out of that and find another mentor and not just stick with someone because they happen to be the person that you're with. So be quite active about that. And if you find a good mentor who's willing to put you first, also show them that you're willing to support them with things because sometimes mentors can get a bit tired. You know, if it's a one-way relationship where they're only giving you opportunities, but you don't also give them something back in a sense, support, uh, you know, so if you can find a reciprocal relationship where they really value what you can offer them and, and they can offer you particularly access to networks and relationships because that is, I think, not only what interdisciplinary interdisciplinarity is about, it's, it's what research is about. Even if you're doing a unidisciplinary thing, relationships are still going to matter to you. And the last thing is, um, if you're getting involved in, in an interdisciplinary collaborative paper, like a synthesis effort, if there's no clear leader for that paper, if there's no one who's holding the pen and going to get it done, don't do it because you'll just waste your time. One more quick thing. I was just going to say, so again, because it's advice for early career researchers, I think some really good solid advice that I've received is put out your single author papers because that is when invitations to collaborate also follow. Uh, because then people know what sort of work you are doing, what sort of journals you've been publishing. The reviewers also ultimately get to know your name. So that has been some really good advice that I've received and it has been working out so far. The Navigating Interdisciplinarity podcast series is brought to you by a working group belonging to the Early Career Network of the International Association for the Study of Commons. We are the IAACECN. For more information on our activities and to join a vibrant network, do check us out at iasc-commons.org. That's iasc-commons.org. Thank you, everyone. Until next time. Bye-bye.